I look forward to hosting a very interesting discussion this Saturday morning. MSU professor Tommy Donovan will talk about the process of death and dying, something we have witnessed in others and which we will go through ourselves at the end of our lives. Dr. Donovan will talk about the mystery of mortality, the healing power of grief, and the need for finding meaning in death. I invite you to join us during this constructive interview. It's Gazoodite with Jacobus. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Nice to be with you as I enjoy my time behind the microphone every Saturday morning from 8 to 11. I uh, hope that you will stick with us till 11 o'clock because I think this is going to be a wonderful show, great discussion points and very interesting and it can go very deep and i don't know if deep is the right word that's eight in the morning for some of you waking up and just opening your eyes so uh talk about health healing and healthy lifestyles that's what the word gesundheit means gesundheit with jacobus i'm your host jacobus Holloway. we talk about health healing and healthy lifestyles with the experts about body mind and spirit we give them a chance to talk about a project they've been working on their profession books they've written research papers they have studied or working on, and uh, just a passion that they have. On this program, we never really diagnose, treat, or cure. Sometimes it uh, may be a slip of the tongue, so to say, but it's we always want you to know that the purpose of the show is education, information, and hopefully some entertainment. Always find better and the best results from seeing a physician of your choice, it could very well be the guest on the program afterwards, but the information available on the web, in books, in libraries, in magazine articles, there is great information out today for all of us to become better educated and feel more empowered when it comes to our health. So that's what we're going to talk about every Saturday morning from 8 to 11 on this radio station. I really appreciate you are with, you, with me today. And let me tell you a little bit about my guest today, uh, Dr. Dami Donovan. He holds a doctorate in depth psychology with a specialty in mortality studies. He received his degree from Pacifica Graduate Institute and currently teaches in the Honors College at Montana State University. If you'd like to get a hold of him, the number is 994 4110. And uh, you can email him at thomas.donovan at montana.edu. thomas.donovan at montana.edu. And uh, he'll get that email and he would he doesn't mind sending one back to you. So, Dr. Donovan, absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show. Good morning, Jacobus. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Before we get started, I, I want to I wanna ask you already, can we get our agendas out and already plan the next show? <laughs> we haven't even said anything yet, but I, looking at the topics and the discussions that we can have, and I think that 
listeners may either listen or get involved in the discussion, this is such an interesting topic. The topic of mortality and the mystery of mortality. Now, you are also teaching text and critics at the Honors College. What is it that got you fascinated, maybe, in this topic of mortality? Well, I think it goes all the way back to my childhood. Um, I had the misfortune of having my father pass away when I was eight. Mm -hmm. Wow. And in, in my family, nobody talked about that. So oh. the, the process of dying, what happens to people, the grief, how to express it, never had a conversation, never had a dialogue about that. Hmm. So it was a mystery. Yeah. A, a serious mystery. I, I didn't get a full story about my father's passing until I was 12. Huh. So I think, and uh, in, in looking back, I didn't know this at the time, obviously, looking back, it felt like I was always curious about what happened to my dad, hmm. what happens when people die. A few years after my father's death, my grandfather passed away in his bed in the house. We were all gathered around him. Again, nobody really talked about that. Nobody really grieved openly. So again, it was another one of those mysterious moments, like what's happening here? What happens when people pass away? Huh. So it's uh, it's an, it, the seeds were planted early, uh, but it wasn't until I was in graduate school uh, for for my doctorate in psychology that um, I had a chance to explore this with my dissertation. When I was six, my grandfather died, mm -hmm. and I knew he had died. But to have a feeling about that is uh, I I remember vaguely that I go oh he's gone but maybe not have that emotional impact. My father died when I was 17. For me, a very fragile time because you're a teenager. I was getting in a relationship with my current wife. And, you know, so I was going, my, my attention was focusing in a different direction. I have had some discussions with my dad that were not always pleasant. And so at the time, I had a hard time feeling sad and emotional about it. He died of a heart attack, like boom, you know, mm -hmm. 5.30 in the afternoon. Um, it took me many years later to to realize the kind of man he was and to actually feel love love for him. Um, and I, that's a feeling I still have for him. Just a, a certain sadness, but also a certain love. I have forgiven him for everything that I felt about him that I thought I was right as a teenager that I was right, and little realized he did the best he could with what he had, and he was a good man. Is that something that when you were 12 and somebody kind of explained things to you about your dad, did were you ready to process some of that emotionally? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I was hungry for it. You know, I grew up in a household that, uh, you know, white, Christian, Protestant, it wasn't the household where we could rip our clothes and throw ourselves on the gravesite. You know, it wasn't it wasn't allowed. It wasn't allowed to feel and explore those emotions. By the time I was twelve, and my mother finally made peace with her own grief mm -hmm. and was able to talk to us, my mm -hmm. sister and I, and share both her love for my father, her grief for his absence, to tell us the details of his passing. Mm -hmm. That was an amazing gift, and, and yeah. who knows what that gift would have brought if it had occurred when I was eight. 
Oh. Maybe I wasn't mature enough to take it all in, so that's quite possible. Hmm. But to have complete silence around uh, my father's passing, I mean, imagine having complete silence around someone in your life dying and, and nobody's there to help the child navigate that. Yes. Yeah, I was hungry by the time I was 12, and I, I, a lot of things fell into place with that conversation, and I was very grateful to my mother for finally being mm. able to do that. Mm. So then your life continued, but that knowledge, that experience, it's more than knowledge, it's experience and feeling, there has been with you not a fascination, but an interest in understanding death better and and obviously we, everything that is alive at some point will die as we know death and the have you been inspired by different cultures different religions uh, over in into this topic of death have has it matured your feeling has it really transcended the feeling that you felt when you were 12 to something completely different or has it been fine-tuned uh, have you changed your mind completely about it? Uh, can you explain some of that? I, I think I submerged my curiosity about death for decades. I, 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 I'm, again, I'm a child of the 60s, and I became more interested in the sociology and the politic, politics of life. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I was an activist at different points. I... Uh, I, I wanted to make society better, and 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 that didn't seem to have anything to do with death. I originally thought. Over the years, and especially uh, when I was in graduate school writing my dissertation, I came upon the book "The Denial of Death" by Ernest Becker, which is a Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, inquiry into how humans deny mortality and how that looks personally mm. as well as culturally. Okay. It was that moment, and I was already in my 50s by then, Yeah. Uh, where death, my desire to understand sociology and how we act culturally finally got married to the idea of mortality. And in that moment, it all came rushing back after decades of not even thinking about the power of mortality. Hmm. In that moment, reading that book and understanding humans are the only creatures we know who know that we will pass away. Right. Not only do we know it, we can imagine it. We can imagine it as peaceful. We can imagine it as painful. We can imagine it as horrible. But that fact that we are conscious at that level, that somewhere down the road we will be no longer uh, according to my studies and many people's studies, shapes how we build our cultures, how we build our lives, how we create our legacies, how we interact with our hmm. our fellow humans. So That's our right. awareness of mortality, in my opinion, shapes pretty much everything. Right. Several years ago, the movie The Bucket List came out, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. And it was a funny way of looking at what do I want to do before I die? But at the same time, I realized that if you take away the take away the fun, you know, there is a message there. And that message I feel is displayed in something that you say, we are aware 
about our mortality and we're trying to accomplish something. And in your curriculum that you teach, there is a 15 minute, 20 minute clip from TED Talks about mortality. And I forgot right now the four, the four steps, the four, let me see, what does it say? Uh, St- uh, Stephen Cave. Yes. The four stories we tell ourselves about death. Would you mind elaborating on that? Because I thought it was very interesting how he, if if you recall some of that, maybe we can find it and play it, play a piece of that later. Um, but people have been fascinated once they understood death; they've been fascinated with it throughout history. And you see it in you see it in art, you see it in religion. Just the whole fact for some people, religion is what they hold on to, that after death, there is something better. But the funny thing is, we have all these opportunities in life, and I still want you to answer the question. Sorry, I start talking about it now. But we, we're we living life, and we try to do the best we can. Most people, let's let's assume most people do the best we can, and we can make a beautiful life that we literally can enjoy every day. There is something beautiful that we can experience every day. And still we say, but when we die, it's going to be great. And I go like, but we don't know what's on the other side, of course, books have been written about it, but what are your thoughts about those four paths, those four stages or the four ways to uh, look at death and dying? Well, uh, Stephen Cave's book, Immortality, is actually very fascinating, and it, it, it builds on a lot of the research that I've studied. I, I think what's fascinating, I'm, I'm trying to remember all four now. So, uh, Well, the first one uh, is... Um, uh, Oh, but, shoot. But we'll, I know there is resurrection, right. there is soul, there is legacy, and there is elixir. Elixir is number one. Right, right. So what's fascinating to me, I mean, let's think about this for a second. Let's see if we can go back maybe hundreds of thousands of years to the first human with a brain development to understand that they are an, a self and they will, have, they will have to die at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean... Um, imagine having that capability of knowing that you're mortal. What do you do with that so it doesn't paralyze you with anxiety? So this is where the, the research gets really fascinating, where, like Stephen Cave's Four Points and probably dozens of others, we fill that space of anxiety with meaning. We construct systems of meaning mm-hmm. that anchor us in reality tell us that we're important give us self-esteem create groups and cultures that protect and nurture us and from that from that seed of anxiety about our demise we've created all manner of beauty religion uh legacies uh ways for us to feel good about our existence as short as, as it is. And I think that's what's fascinating. Everything we look around us at, at the risk of being completely reductionist, I think we could trace back to an immortality project or an immortality fantasy or an mm-hmm. immortality strategy, mm-hmm. whether it's religion or culture or my offspring or my name on the building on campus those have something to do with um, helping us feel like we are not going to die and be forgotten. Right, right. Yeah, 
that is uh, true. Or that if we haven't done everything we could do, that we'll live another life where we can hopefully accomplish that. Right, right. And I think he mentions in that clip also that he was fascinated in the late 60s with the the rockets. So they would always say, well, where, Grandpa passed away. And where's Grandpa? Well, he's up there. He's up there in the heavens. Right. And because nobody had really been in outer space, you go like, okay, well, it's up there. And then all of a sudden, the rockets are going into outer space, and he didn't see Grandpa. <laughs> you know, it's like, where, where is he? And so... There's this like, oh, well, how does this work right now? How do we how do we look at that uh this whole idea of resurrection and 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 where's heaven and what is it and how do we visualize it? Is it in our minds? Is it in our hearts? Is there actually a place, is there like clouds somewhere where there's a lot of activity going on? You know, it's like <laughs> bowling alleys and bars and <laughs> man caves. <laughs> I imagine those places do exist for some people. I mean, heaven I think, on earth. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the great beauty of human creativity, right? I, I used to think these fantasies needed to be disabused, right? They needed to be punctured. They needed to be undermined. But I, I, I've become more fascinated with the with the variety of creativity of our species to make sense of life and make sense of death. Mm -hmm. There's something beautiful there. Yeah, I, I think problems become when you say my strategy for immortality, my religion or my vision of what happens is better than someone else's. It's true. That's where we get more clashes. When, how would I put this? When, when immortality strategies collide in cultures, which mm -hmm. I think all culture is an immortality strategy at mm -hmm. some level. When those collide and one side says mine's better, and yours is not good that's when we have problems but the but the beauty the, the the like you said the art the creativity the buildings the mythologies the books that have been written incredible i mean the that's why we have these amazing libraries all over the world mm -hmm. where books have been preserved that are hundreds of years old ever since books were printed and even before then books were written to have that information that we can tap into, into the minds of people, and then realize that in that, in that, in those thousands of years or many centuries, that a lot of things haven't changed. Correct. We're still looking for answers, or we're still working on ourselves. Things we have grown, things we have developed the planet, we have done things that are amazing, and some things are not so good. But it is the search of the individual about this whole idea of mortality, that even the destruction of the earth, you know, Nostradamus giving us predictions about when the earth will go and when war will happen and people will die. And so there has been, been this fascination with bad things that can happen to this planet, which is ultimately the collapse of the planet and the death of civilization as we know it and life. And we're seeing that now, right? We're seeing that whole story played out with the debates and struggles around climate change, right? Sure. Some people feel that that is an urgent thing to pay attention to, right? Our planet and our lives on the planet are suddenly possibly up for grabs in the next decades. Yeah. But other people see that as very frightening, right? It's 
your, immort your, your, your immortality is immediately questioned when you consider the destruction of the planet. So I think sometimes people are afraid to approach the climate change question, not because of politics, but because it brings up too much anxiety about mortality. Hmm. And they want to back away from that question because it's frightening to contemplate the end of the planet and the end of the human race. Correct. That is true. I uh, I can see that. And and for uh, for many people they say climate change. I got enough worries right here in my own house, my own health, my 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 partner is dying, my child has a horrible disease and so they're thinking about the death and dying that is very upon us and and not something that is far away. So yeah, okay, I'll take care of that in my own way, but I cannot worry about that right now because I got my own survival that I got to worry about, right. you know, and that is again survival. You, why, why are you surviving? I don't want to die. So it's uh, there is definitely a lot, a lot going on in this topic. I, I really, uh, I really appreciate you bring this up. When your wife came in the store and said that you were teaching this class, I said, man, this it sounds macabre. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I said this is a fascinating topic because everybody who is interested in health is partly doing that because we we know we're going to die and we want to see how can we carve our path how to get there yes. and how can it be pleasant very much all so. right all right folks you're listening to gesundheit with jacobus dr tommy donovan my guest this morning as we're talking about the mystery of mortality amongst other things we will be right back Is there something, is there a certain culture, a certain concept that has fascinated you more since you've been studying this topic? Or have, has it changed as your life has changed, coming to Montana, being in Montana? Do you think about it differently now? Um, is there a certain, but, but one of the questions I have, is there a, is there a certain culture that you feel really close to more than what you were taught that has fascinated you with the whole concept of mortality, death and dying and grief. and uh, Actually, I think I've become probably less cultural in, mm. in, this, in that sense. You know, I was, mm. I was baptized Catholic and raised in a Protestant household, so heaven and the afterlife was majorly important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think, as I said earlier, with the passing of my dad and not a lot of explanations, I just thrashed around trying to figure it out. And now, as an adult, I, I, it just seems very practical to me. Uh, I, I've often wondered, do I have my own immortality strategy somewhere? Uh, or, or is it just simply I, I understand that we, we inevitably pass and how do we make peace with that? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, as far as I can tell, I don't have a big story or a big ritual or a big cultural way mm -hmm. that I hold mortality. Okay. It, it seems much more practical. Really? Which is what? How is it more practical? That we live, we pass away. It's, it's, it's that basic in my mind these days. Hmm. Uh, not that there isn't grief, not that there isn't suffering, but I, I don't have 
uh, a conscious strategy that says, when I die, X will happen. You know, everybody has some sort of vision of that, right? Some people have heaven. We talked about that earlier. Some people say our molecules go back into the cosmos or into the universe and we never die. Some people feel that our personal consciousness leaves the body. Maybe that's the soul and goes elsewhere. Other cultures feel like things get reincarnated and re reappear in some other form or in some other life. Um, none of those things seem to hold a lot of energy for me. Interesting. The, uh, for me personally, the topic of reincarnation has always fascinated me. And I, I think that it exists. Otherwise, I wouldn't bring it up, right? <laughs> but people have often said, how was it possible that an individual like a Mozart is born, learns music, writes his first opera at the age of four? And if you look how complex an opera is and look at what he wrote in, I think, the movie Amadeus, even though it is not perfectly perfect, when Salieri is watching the pieces of music that his Mozart's wife brings to him and he says there is no he said well leave those over here I'll, I'll get them back to you and she said no those are originals and he says there is no eraser mark anywhere mm. he said it's like God is talking to this crazy guy and making the most beautiful music and here he dies at the age of 33 or 34 while on his deathbed writes his unbelievable requiem which is a beautiful piece and that is one example. I I have also had, and I don't know if you've had it, sometimes we meet people and we come from different towns, different countries, different, they just moved here. Never any way that I could have seen that individual. And there is this instant connection. It's like, I, you, we have seen each other. I know you. And they said, no, I don't know. Well, he said, you look familiar too, but no. And I wonder... Sometimes what that is, if there is a, you know, my wife has said one, some people we meet for a reason, mm -hmm. some people we meet for a season, and some people we meet for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have to meet these people and have temporary connection with them, and then we all move on or we die. But to me, there are things that I have read and seen that I thought there is something to this reincarnation and i but i don't think that we can just live our life and just be done with it and just reincarnate i think there is a certain when life is given to us mm. and death is inevitable but if life is given to us we are given a responsibility correct i i, I agree with that and, right and and i think maybe when it comes to mozart maybe god was speaking to him and through him i mean that's genius, right? But for, I guess for me, I, my, maybe my immortality strategy, and I'm, I, I'm working this out as I say it, is, is, is being a decent, good, responsible human being in life. Correct. That's where I, if I, if I leave a legacy, that's what I want it to be. I want it to be that I was a good neighbor, a good friend, a good partner, a good teacher, uh, and that will be plenty. Mm -hmm. um, at this stage in my life, I, I don't 
imagine. And I don't feel like I have a need to imagine that when my body passes away, that I'm going someplace else. Hmm. That it, uh, it, it doesn't fit anymore. It just, uh, but I appreciate it. I appreciate, again, back to the creativity of I human think beings. you had the same thought in your past life. <laughs> <laughs> you said, I don't care. <laughs> and here you are again. And then they brought me back. <laughs> He's not getting it. He's not getting it. It's like the movie Godfather. They keep pulling me back yeah. <laughs> into life. I'm trying to get out of here already. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, and, and maybe some people might find that a little empty or a little strange or a little sad. But, but this is where my life experience and my studies have brought me. You know, mm-hmm. for me, it's that the fact that I'm going to die heightens my desire to live as a good human being. Right. That's where uh, my energy seems to be more concentrated as I approach, you know, my late 60s and approach 70 pretty soon. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier about libraries. And so many books have been written. And there really can be only one truth, I always think. You know, but people, their own experiences inspires them to write a chapter, to write a book, to write an article, to write their point of view. Is it possible that with all the reading that you have done, and and you have done extensive reading, I mean, I just look at all the stuff you do, but is it possible that one can read only certain a certain angle of a certain topic, form an opinion and say it's good enough for me? Is it possible that if you would go completely something that would be opposite of what you were thinking, but similar topic about death and mortality and dying, that it may change your mind? It's certainly possible because that's already happened, right? I mean, I was, when I was a teenager or younger, you know, Christian household, heaven, resurrection, uh, you know, I was immersed in that. So you're exactly right. As I branched out from that and looked at, you know, reading the Bhagavad Gita or reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead or, you know, all of those things were very fascinating and and at the time quite comforting. Mm -hmm. And I certainly made sense of those in my own way and embraced aspects of that to help get me through the night. Mm -hmm. And now with more readings, I guess I've arrived at this place. So it's possible that I could move in a different direction now and possibly change my whole approach. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but this is, seems to be where I've landed, and I've been studying this mortality question seriously since uh, you know, 2006. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty much what I think about yes. all day long. And I, I tease my students. You know, People wonder, like, why are you taking a class about death? Why are you teaching a class about death? And I tell them, it's not morbid. We, this is the this class will it, it induce the most laughter and the most joy mm. because we are actually confronting something that the culture tries to hide. Right. Yeah, that's really really good, and I I can see that. I can I can definitely uh, just sitting here with you and and having been able to communicate with you more. Uh, this is absolutely a topic that is uh, that could be a lot of fun. <laughs> I wouldn't say. <laughs> laughing out loud but lol (laughs) 
we, we have a blast in our our classroom, and 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 we also it also brings up what what the what this topic does. It seems for a lot of people is allows them a space to explore this that most of our culture closes down. Mm-hmm. You know, our our culture. When someone dies in our culture, you have about fifteen minutes to get over it, mm-hmm. and I think that's tragic. And so what I see in my classroom a lot is a lot of tender moments, a lot of joyful moments, remembrances of people who have passed or joy at people who are still here, uh, a space that opens up for maybe some grief over someone who's ill or possibly dying. It's a, it's a place for a conversation, again, that, that our society just... Is, is doesn't seem mature enough in many respects or seems scared to engage in. So that's one of the reasons I'm appreciating you in this radio station because this is a conversation that is rare hmm. in, in our culture. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. 522-8255. 522-TALK, folks. You're listening to Gesundheit with Jacobus. I am Jacobus Holloway, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Tommy Donovan, a professor at Montana State University in the Honors College. We very much appreciate he is with us today. Uh, this is uh, just, I, I love this topic, and, and, and that's why he is passionate about it too, that he found that, and there's so much to say about it. Um, in one of the topics you, you, you discuss with your students, uh, the, there is a topic called terror management. Tell us a little bit about that. What? Why did you bring that as part of the curriculum, talking about death and dying? Well, this is the uh, original source of the research about, um, you know, what I classify as mortality studies. Back in the 1970s, a group of social psychologists, three in particular, were fascinated, like I was, by The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker, that book. And they thought it made so much sense to what goes on in the world and what goes on in people's psyches that they wanted to explore it. And they were pretty much laughed out of the social psychology meetings. And they they said people responded to them by saying, if you can experiment on this, then we'll take you seriously. So for the last 30 years, they've been experimenting on what happens when people are reminded of their mortality. And they've Mm -hmm. called this terror management theory, the theory of how we manage our terror of death. So that's that's their shorthand, TMT, Mm -hmm. terror management theory. So they've done hundreds and hundreds experiments. Uh, For example, the, the basic theory is if you're reminded of your mortality, you cling more fiercely to your core values. Okay. And the converse is also true. If your core values are threatened, it's not a difference of opinion. You feel mortally uh, distressed. You mm. feel like you might die at a, at a subconscious level. Okay. So they do all these experiments. In, in a quick shorthand, the, probably the easiest experiment is one of their first ones with judges, and municipal judges in Tucson, Arizona. They had two groups. One they reminded of their mortality. One that was just reminded of dental pain, something that creates anxiety but not mortality. Sure. They put before both of these groups um, a case. 
prostitution, women arrested for prostitution. Each group was supposed to set the bail for the person. It's all hypothetical, but that was sure, the, the experiment. Sure, sure. The group that was not reminded of their mortality set the bail at the common rate of $50. Okay. The, and, they, they, you know, these are judges. The expectation is these people will be hyper-objective, right? They're not going to get the, let their biases get in the way. Sure. The group that was reminded of its mortality reached deeply into its moral values and set the bail at $450. Hmm. Completely opposite responses. Yes. So from there, they've done all manner of studies about Let's remind people of their mortality in, and ask them to do this task or ask them to try this or ask them to sit with. And they found amazing, amazing things in that process. Mm. Uh, some people reminded of their mortality will want to do violence of people who don't agree with them. And they did a test with hot sauce. You know, the okay. experiment was give this person hot sauce the appropriate amount. This is super hot. Give that person hot sauce. The people who were reminded of their mortality, like, doubled and tripled the amount of hot sauce they were giving people. Why would that be? Because when you're reminded of your mortality, your tendency is to um, look at the other person who's different from you as some sort of threat or okay. Yeah, okay. something that has to be pushed back against. Like in the movie Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm thanks for the visualization. Uh. <laughs> and, you know, um, they, they have a book called The Worm at the Core, uh, Death in, you know, the Impact of Death in Life. You know, worm at the Core is an expression that the, the great American psychologist William James coined when he looked at life. He said, life is like an apple and the worm at the core is our mortality. Okay. And that book has been out for, I think, two years now. And it's a fascinating look at the terror management theory. Okay. It has examples of their experiments. And it's, and they have, uh, you know, they speculate on what, what the planet would be like if we could make peace with our mortality and not, uh, you know, not push against others or, or try to make our strategies, uh, you know, better than someone else's. Another topic that you bring up during your curriculum at Montana State University is uh, managing death anxiety. What's the difference between managing death anxiety and discussing the terror of the terror management? What's, what's the difference? Um, is there a difference? Well, one flows from the other, right? Okay. I mean, the, the, okay. the terror management explores the causes of that anxiety and some of the repercussions if it's not managed right. so at, at some point w w we have to manage that and most of us do right most of us when we're reminded of mortality and i think we're reminded of mortality more than we imagine we are uh but most of us when we're reminded of that don't go around you know trying to give people extra doses of hot sauce or being mean mm -hmm, mm -hmm, most mm -hmm. of us I think the way they put it, they look at these, we have proximal ways to manage it. You know, if I'm reminded of mortality, the first way I usually manage it is go, oh, I'm okay. I'm healthy. I'm nothing's wrong with me. You, you do a, you know, you, you, you self check and you go, oh, that's fine. I, I manage my anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other way we do it is much more symbolic, right? We go to our core values, like the example I gave. Um, and most of the time we manage it just fine. 
we, we, we don't freak out. Maybe we go to the gym a little, we run on the treadmill an extra 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of this again is at, at a deep unconscious level. Yes. So the, the management takes many, many forms. It's not always, uh, an antagonistic form. Yes. Uh, and sometimes it's those, you know, we, we remind ourselves that we have a legacy. We remind ourselves of, we have meaning in our lives. We remind ourselves we have people who love and care for us. Those are ways to manage that terror. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. 522-8255. 522-TALK. Uh, Dr. Tommy Donovan, my guest this morning on Gesundheit with Jacobus. If you have any questions about the topic today, uh, the topic is death becomes us. The mystery of mortality and the need for meaning. So the need for meaning in this case is value. Is that what you mean with the need for meaning? Is that what is the value of mortality in our life? How does it affect our life? How does it, how does it make us change the way we do things once we start realizing death happens? Is that, or death is inevitable? Well, is that what it means? Yeah, the, the, the need for meaning is our response to what otherwise would be an anxiety-producing void of our lives ending. So we, we construct systems that, again, allow, allows us to be anchored in our reality, right? Mm -hmm. um, for example, in America, we, we have a system, we have a mythology and a and a, and a meaning-making system. Basically, we tell each, we tell ourselves that if we do well, we will prosper. You know, we're, we're, our God-given right is to, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you play by the rules, things will work out. You know, one generation leaves the world better for the next generation. These are all ways to anchor us in a meaningful culture. Mm -hmm. Gives our our lives and our world structure it 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 enhances our self-esteem it, it allows us to get along with each other it allows us to navigate our reality hmm. um, so that's how that's that's the meaning every culture will have a different meaning system and i sure. and i think it flows out of uh the need not to not to have simply our lives end with hmm. a whimper mm-hmm um, so, so we spend a lot of time constructing meaning systems and then, and this is where terror management, I think makes it's one of its greatest contributions is that when meaning systems contact each other, there's often a collision. So it's like this, if my meaning system makes sense of mortality and so does yours, yeah. Whoa, which one is better? Does that mean mine is more shaky now? And how do I respond to that? Do I convert you to mine? Do I suppress you? Do I ridicule you? Or do I clobber you mm. and get rid of you so mm. I can build up my system? Right. When we come back, I would like to discuss with you how we are treating the dying in this. Do we treat it enough with enough respect, dignity, and compare that maybe to some other cultures, how the dying folks are being treated and helped. Uh, so I appreciate you here today. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Tommy Donovan, my guest this morning. Uh, please stay tuned. I know there is a telephone call coming in, but we have to wait till after the break. 
So we very much appreciate you. Stay tuned, please. We will be right back. You have a very wonderful way of explaining things. I can tell you're a teacher. Uh, you 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 think there is a there is such a depth, and and I have been able to have some conversations with you before, and I just um, just enjoy you. I know you enjoy dialogue. I do. But I have to tell you that I enjoy just kicking back and listening to you. So <laughs> I, it's um, I'm a little bit in a battle because once you're going, I just go like, keep going. <laughs> like I got to ask a question here. Or, <laughs> but anyway, I, I very much appreciate you here, and I, I do hope we'll uh, this can be the first of more meetings. I, I look forward to that. All right, Thank wonderful. You. you bet. We have a caller on hold who would like to ask you a question or share a comment. Good morning, caller. What is your name, please? How can we help you? Oh. Give us a call when we put you on hold. Okay, maybe this this time. Let's see if this one works. Uh, good morning, caller. What's much. your name? How can we help you, please? Um, my name is Grant, and I just wanted to say what's up to my professor, Prof. D. Thank you, Grant. Good morning. Good morning. Grant, could you turn the uh, the the the, uh, the radio down a little bit in the background? Yeah, sorry, it was a little loud there. That's okay. Do you have a question or a comment about what you're hearing today? Um, yeah, I just had a comment that uh, I think uh, Prof D really sounds like a pretty knowledgeable speaker, and we're just headed up backcountry skiing right now, being reminded of some mortality when we're considering <laughs> the avalanche terrain, and... Uh, you know, it's making me cling pretty tight to my core values of loving skiing, and so I think maybe having that possibility of death always in my in the back of my mind as I go skiing just makes me love it that much more. Ah, that's a good point. That that's I think that's fascinating, and it's true. And uh, I, of course, I want you to be safe out there. But as you know from your own experience, the the heightened intensity uh, brings a crystallization of the beauty of life. I mean, it's quite amazing. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, I just wanted to say good morning and uh, what's up to Prof D. <laughs> Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Grant. You get an A. Have a <laughs> absolutely. And so, I told you in class that I would call you, so I had to. Yes, you, you're a man of your word. I appreciate that. I look forward to seeing you on Tuesday. <laughs> Have fun out okay. there. Bye-bye, Grant. Bye-bye. This is indeed a fascinating topic. Uh, the death becomes us. The mystery of mortality and the need for meaning. And uh, some of the topics we like to discuss is, first of all, the dilemma of knowing that we are mortal. Our need for meaning in the face of this awareness. Meeting death squarely. And the healing power of grief. One of the things that I, as you were talking in the last half hour, is I'm visualizing all of a sudden people in India and when somebody is dying, how they treat the people who are dying. And when you think about Egypt, the embalming of the body, the putting special special personal items with the individual to uh, on their journey to beyond, preparing the body for that journey burning the body in India uh, 
it, it's it's a very interesting topic, and I would like to ask you a question about it. Maybe you can think about it, but we'll take a call. Okay. Good morning, caller. Thanks for joining the program today. What's your name, please, and how can we help you? This is Pete Jacobus. Hey, Pete, good morning to you. Good morning to you and your guest. Thank you. Good morning. You know, I, I guess I can speak to this a little bit because I've been dead, but I don't remember it. Yeah. <laughs> but I know it happened. Yes. And, and I've always thought about, you know, the, the purpose of man, even when I was a young teenager, you know, why are we here is a big question. Mm. And from there, the next question that got in my mind was this. If there were no religions on this planet that believed in life after death, would that change the ratio between basically good people and basically bad people? In other words, you only go around once, grab for all the gusto. If you hurt somebody else, it don't matter because you're just going to be dead in the end anyway. That was one of the things I thought of. You know, and of course, when we're young, we're bulletproof. Nothing's ever going to happen to me. We deal with life, with death. If you are a religious person, you deal with life and death with this statement. They're in a better place. Right. They suffered long enough, because that doesn't justify the death of the innocent. Okay? And yeah. I was raised a Catholic like your, your guest. And I left the church when I was 16. I was just over it. They wouldn't talk to me in English. It, it seemed like they weren't interested in me. Yeah, and they, and yet the problem I had with that religion was two things: purgatory and original sin. Mm. I just thought original sin was the most atrocious thing <laughs> that any just God could ever do, okay, or would ever do. It's like a pre-existing and, condition in healthcare these days, right? Right. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely you can't get coverage for it <laughs> but it, it is certainly an interesting topic and your guest said he just wants to be a good person in life and when you said that I'm thinking to myself well maybe he doesn't think that he believes in life after death but maybe he does subconsciously consider life after death because the bad, if, if you consider that, they're going to a place that's on fire. Yeah, that's a problem. It, according to, to, to religion. And it's, it's a fascinating topic. Like I said, I've, I've always thought about it, even as a young teenager. And I'm still searching, man. <laughs> right. I'm still looking for the, the reality of it all. And, of course, when you get right down to it, the reality of it all is death is part of life, mm. yep. at least for me. Mm. And, anyway, that's my two cents worth, Jacobus. You have a great uh, day. I love your show. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate thank all your you, listening Pete. support. Bet. Okay, bye-bye. That's interesting. Yeah, that was an interesting question. You know, I, I, I used to have more problem with religion than I do now. I think it's, you know, whether all religions believe in life after death or we had a, a world where no religions were believing that we would come up with something equally as creative to make sense of mortality 
yeah. to make sense of our existence. That's that's our nature. We will create uh, uh, amazing things to answer those existential questions. And um, I think the problem comes when, you know, a, a group or a religion or a mythology says, in order for me to be even more secure, I have to make your belief system non-existent or uh, I have to do something to dominate it, to show that my, mortali my immortality plan is, is stronger than yours or more real. Correct. Right. That's right, where we right. get into a lot of discussions and, and fights. Yeah. And I think a lot of our personal problems and social issues and our global problems ultimately come down to places where our immortality fantasy is threatened. I see. So hmm. that, that, that's the, that's the realm I'm working in. And I appreciate Pete's questions. And I, I, I have not noticed myself thinking about life after death to answer his you know, final question. Hmm. I have a text from Karen, and she says, don't miss what the Bible is very clear about concerning death. Not by good works, but by asking God into our hearts that we live eternally with God in heaven. My granddaughters here in Bozeman have asked God to live in their hearts. We all must share this easy, necessary knowledge before his return or our death. Deep. Yeah, I think very that's, deep. It's, it's very deep and it's uh, uh, a popular view, certainly in uh, Christian countries or Christian belief systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think there's great beauty there. It, it obviously holds her and her granddaughters close to each other and, yeah. and, and, and makes sense of life and death for them, which is all most of us want to do is to make sense of this. Yes. But it is what you're saying. We cannot put our personal feelings upon anybody else. And we're living in a time where we are confronted with this, with the social media, very clearly, but also in the news. We are aware that there is, uh, we're talking about the Muslims at this point, the, the militant who say, if you don't believe in what we believe, you don't deserve to live. Mm -hmm. The Catholics have done that in several hundred years ago, coming to the United States and of uh, northern, northern, central, and South America and killed people, beheaded them mm -hmm. gruesomely if they didn't want to believe in Catholicism and in the Pope. We have seen this throughout history where religions have been, and, and, and that was one of the things that was mentioned in the, um, in the video from uh, Stephen, Stephen Cave. Cave, where he said, most death have happened in the name of God and country than any other death, really. Uh, I mean, we're talking about violent death. Yeah, I mean, I mean think about it. I mean, there, I, I, I don't think there has been, has ever been a time where um, someone's more immortality strategy didn't bump into somebody else's, right? So again, what do you have? What do you do when that happens? Whether whether it's Islam or Christianity, uh, even Buddhists in Myanmar are battling for their immortality strategy, right? Mm 
Right. And and you see it in... You wouldn't expect that, right? Not typically. The Tibetan monks uh, going after each other with those little horns. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, even in politics, right? I mean, Democrats, Republicans, there's a view of the world in, embodied in some of those uh, differences. Democracy versus communism. Democracy versus authoritarianism. Uh, those, are, to me, are ultimately secular immortality strategies that, you know, keep, keep us anchored and mm -hmm. give us meaning. And when they get threatened or when they start to feel diminished in some way, then a lot of times people and countries and leaders come out swinging. And I think we can see that around the globe, everywhere we look. Immortality strategies, in my opinion, are colliding all over the place. Yes. Yeah, that is, uh, that's... That's a great point that you bring up, and I was uh, going to jump on something, and now I uh, spaced, <laughs> spaced well, we, out we, on it. We we could go back to one of the questions you raised before the last break, which is about how the the death, treatment. the dying, are being treated. Thank you. W one of our texts in the class. It's an amazing book. If people have not read it, is called "Being Mortal" by Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon, uh, and his his uh, his heritage is from India. Uh, the first line of the book is, it, it says it all about how our culture appreciates or doesn't the process of dying. The first line in the book is, to paraphrase, I went to medical school and learned nothing about death. Interesting. It, it's completely, wow. almost completely absent uh, in medical training. Um, you know, so so for him, that whole book is, is an un- is a revealing of how scared we are of the question, how medicine fights a heroic battle, sees death as a failure and an insult rather than a natural process. Mm -hmm. And in the process of seeing it as an insult or a failure, does all sorts of needless, expensive, and sometimes gruesome uh, practices to try to keep someone alive. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, hooking them up to tubes and respirators. And not a surgery two days before death. Right, more you know, surgery. Well, maybe do more research. Uh, yeah. We'll slap it on the bill. You know, it's like, well, it's your research. Why don't you pay for it yourself? You know, no, you pay for it. Yeah. So so death and dying, you know, is, 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 is still such a challenging question to approach. Even for scientists, even for medical people, even for doctors and nurses, and um, you know, it's e even the idea of hospice or palliative care uh, runs into the, the the shoals of not being able to handle this conversation. It's, it's continues to be very difficult. You know, a thing that I struggle with at times is in, in my field where people come in and have health questions. And health, nobody is immune from potentially getting a disease, and nobody is immune from dying, you know? But I heard somebody once say, and I really like that quote, and it says, if you ask people the question, would you rather live a long quality life and die a short death? or live a short quality of life and die a long death. 
And people will say, well, I just want to die quickly. But so many people and, and looking at illness and the way we treat the sick and the way we medicate and over-medicate people and many people are being medicated for the, not the right reasons. They have been operate, they're being operated on for the wrong reasons. The timing is wrong. Gallbladder removals and that kind of stuff that could be avoided and can still be avoided for 80% of the cases. So when you look at that, you say we're living indeed in a society that when all of a sudden people have had a chance to take care of this vehicle, this is, a, this is the vehicle that drives us from the day we're born right. till the day we die. In this day and age, we can change a few parts in and out, but in general, no. You know, we have to take care of this body. When somebody comes at this point in their life, when they're close to dying, and all of a sudden they panic and said, oh man, I wish I had done this and that. I sometimes struggle with that and say, you know, it's okay. It's okay to go. You have chosen your life. You have had many chances to really focus on who you are, how your body is functioning, et cetera, et cetera, but you would deny it. And now you want everybody to jump and say, keep me alive as long as possible. And sometimes we just have to say, it's okay. You're going to die. We're right. all going to die. Your time has come. Just go through the process. Be at peace with it. And it is something that I struggle with because in my heart, I want to help anybody. And if they ask me, if they ask me in my case for my help, or if they tell me I'm going to the doctor to get this and this and this, you know, I, I'm with them. I understand it. But I always want to understand where did you go off the rails in a way. And this is, again, Tommy, this is not, there are people who have had accidents and they're really in bad shape and they may die. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who live a life and they have their colds and flus and snivels and, you know, aches and pains. And they come at the end of the life. That's what I'm talking about. Not not everybody. There right. are people who are born with tremendous trauma. They were born behind the eight ball. They've experienced trauma in life. And they do the best they can. You want to help them where they can. But do you understand the question? When we talk about how are we treating the die? Why don't we treat the dying people better? Sometimes I struggle with that because, and, and, and I don't want to sound harsh, but I just struggle with that. How do you approach it right now at this stage of your life? Well, I think Gawande's book actually tackles that because he talks quite a bit about um, the non-heroic approach, right? Not, not trying to save at all costs and all expense, right? To actually have the conversation that maybe it's time to say yes. Uh, it, it's it's your, your body and your, is ready to die and let's let that happen. But we can't blame, I don't know, we can't blame the individuals that they've gone off the rails in a culture that doesn't have the conversation. You can't expect ah. someone, someone at the end of life to suddenly make peace with it yeah. when for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, no one's having a conversation about death is inevitable. How are you going to live your life? I mean, mm -hmm. when I worked for hospice, one of, the, one of the hardest things we had to tackle was people do not take the time to even prepare their loved ones for their demise, whether that's the five wishes document or a will or some plan, you know, even, even loved ones have a difficult time with that conversation. Uh, even people who are hospice workers or, uh, 
medical people may not have powers of attorney. So we're not we're not even having the practical conversation, much less the spiritual conversation. Wow, so, yeah. so if someone arrives in the hospital and is about to figure, you know, is about to die, mm-hmm. the the shock to the system of that may actually make them thrash around and say, "Hey, I'm not, you didn't really tell me that this was what was going to happen. I I, I want to stick around. I, yeah. all, I don't want to do this now." Yeah, because nobody said anything about the process or prepared them psychologically or spiritually or even practically. So. I think it's a shock at the end. Yes. And, you know, I think, I think some people would say, well, it's an instinct for survival, right? You get close to that moment and you, your instincts kick in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that's exactly true. That's a, that's a very interesting answer you give. Definitely uh, very thought-provoking. <laughs> oh, it's good. I, I really Thank appreciate you, that because it, you bet. And, it, it definitely changes. And I, I, I see what you're saying about, uh, in this case, uh, medicine. You know, we're trying to keep people alive, and sometimes it's better to let it go. But at the same time, if you are diagnosed with cancer on Friday and the doctor says, looks like you got three months to live, that's not, who are you to say that, you know? It's, it's perplexing. Yeah, it is. Folks, we're going to take another break. With Dr. Tommy Donovan, uh, please stay tuned. We will be right back. Good morning, Tommy. Good morning, Jacobus. And that is a, uh, a fascinating way of people maybe to deal with it. I, I, when I hear music like this, it is so uh, fascinating to me, the composers and the mindset they must have been in when they wrote it and uh, to bring this kind of, feeling up in people it's almost impossible in my opinion to be numb when you hear something or when i listen to mozart's requiem it's just so beautiful and so intense and there are more uh compositions made songs composed music composed based on the topic of death and dying isn't that fascinating it is i mean i think it underscores the idea that we are masterfully creative in our uh, efforts to deal with our mortality, right? We, we build monuments, we make this beautiful music, you listen to music like this and you can actually envision possibly the soul of a loved one in heaven or the soul of a loved one rising mm-hmm. to meet God. I mean, that's how tangible and palpable these music and the, the, the artistry and the sculptures are. And, and that, that is the, that is one of the most fascinating, beautiful sides of this whole, uh, attempt to make sense of mortality, right? Beautifully creative, uh, unbelievable things, whether it's a ritual, a myth, a dance, art, music, um, just amazing things percolate out of our spirits to, give us peace, to give us beauty, to give us remembrance of the people who have gone, uh, passed on, died. Um, so I, I think, I think we can celebrate that, right? I mean, right. every, everything yeah. that we do in the face of death is not negative or harsh. Some of it's just exquisitely mm-hmm. profound. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I appreciate I appreciated that that music actually. I was I was meditating while you were playing it. it was, yeah, I wanted to play the whole thing. It's four minutes and ten seconds, and it is uh, it's fascinating. But uh, then it will be a musical show. <laughs> I my my music interest goes in many different directions, and it's uh, one of those things where depending on the mood you're in, you just play. And I am grateful for all the people throughout history who have written fascinating fascinating music and because it brings out an emotion and a calm and an excitement depending on the style and a reverence in this case very much so. like you say to the to the ones who have gone before us or the ones who are going through tough times and we we'll all go through tough times we all have our challenges and that is i think when we start realizing mortality somebody who's laying on the beach just and hanging out <laughs> sipping margaritas <laughs> Is not thinking at that point we're going to die, right. but within a within a snap, it can change, and we realize all of a sudden what's going on. Now, before the break, we were talking about are we treating the dying? Can we treat them better? Are we treating them right? And I and I see your issue when you brought up hospice. I think that what hospice has provided for people. The, the, the team, and I think we're very lucky in, in this area where we live to have a group of people working in hospice who are just passionate about individuals. No matter where they come from, right. no matter their age, no matter their state, they just realize this is the stage of their life where they're going to make a transition or it's the end, the end of the book. And you're there to help them with readings with music with holding hands with listening to what they still want to share about their life with uh hygiene with nutrition Mm -hmm. whatever is needed it's taken care of and to me that is a uh a tremendous gift to me that is the work of what i would call saints (laughs) you know uh these are these are special people and there's a gift, and, and for you to do that for a while and to be involved in that, and I know a few other people, it's a, it's a gift because you're never, you can never get paid enough money for that kind of work. So no. you do it because you love. Yeah, I think saints and angels is probably a good description of uh, the aides that go out and the medical staff that goes out. Um, you know, one of the fascinating challenges about hospice, and I, I saw this a couple times when I was out in the field, in order to get hospice, you need a diagnosis of six months or less to live. Correct. It's an incredible psychological leap to admit that, and and that's when you go. When, that's where you see people having great resistance to hospice because you have to make yeah a, a huge mm-hmm. admittance that I'm at the end, or your caregivers have to make that admittance. Maybe that's even harder for them sometimes if the person's maybe incapacitated to actually say yay or nay to hospice the caregivers have to say all right i admit now that there's only six months and my loved one's going to die so again it 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 loops back to the absence of the dialogue throughout our time on earth where if everything gets postponed till the end it's a mess sure it's, it's and it, it's 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 hard on everybody yeah and uh you know, no, no, nobody makes that step easy, but I think it would be qualitative, 
qualitatively easier if it was part of our life conversation. You know, uh, that mortality was our fate and how do we live with that? How do we prepare for that? How do we cross that threshold? Yeah, just can't wait till the end. Um, I so appreciate you here. And uh, this is just a uh, wonderful, wonderful topic. I, uh, I, it, it, it's, I sometimes like to crack a joke, but this is one of these topics where I just, you constantly make me think, and I go, I can't make a joke on this one. But uh, no, not that I want to, because I'm just immersed in the topic. I just uh, totally enjoy this and, 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 and think it is, uh, um, and enjoy, I mean, in, in the best sense of the word, the, the different meanings that I would give to enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives me a certain calm, reverence, um, respect, my my mother raised Catholic. We were raised Catholic also. And my mother was very much a believer in Mother Mary. She prayed a lot. It was her strength. And uh, when she died in 2008, uh, she had a lung, and, uh, lung fibrosis. Mm. And the doctor said it would never heal. Now, my mom never smoked, but my dad had smoked, but he had died 25, 26 years earlier. And, no, 30, 30 years earlier, she said, it's not going to change. I'm 80. I'm ready to die. I want to go see dad. Mm -hmm. Right? So I got a telephone call. I was there in March of 2008 for her 80th birthday. I got a phone call in August from my older sister that she had decided to go to hospice. So in Holland, you go to hospice. It's not that they, you stay in your own home. Right. You leave your home. There are buildings where there are hospice buildings. And so my sister said, you better come because she may die in a week. And I said, in a week? So we get plane tickets. We all fly out there. Rebecca and Anna were already in the Netherlands studying. And um, so we get there, and the first thing we did, so we, we, we heard it on a Sunday, we flew out on a Thursday, we get there on Friday, or whatever, very quickly. <laughs> Left on Wednesday, got there on Thursday, whatever. And I have, we're there, family's there, and my mom is laying in this bed, and and she said, Mom, you know, <laughs> you don't look like you're on death's doorstep. But she said, no, I, I but I, uh, you know, I, I, I want to die. And she said, there's nothing more for me to live for. So the next day, we go back, and the, she had invited the doctor, the, her, her physician, and he stands at the foot of the bed, and he says, uh, well, and she says, well, doctor, go ahead and tell him. And he said, uh, well, why don't you tell him? And so is my my wife, Marielle, and myself, and my older sister. And he says... Um, well, you, my mom says, well, I've decided that uh, I want to die. And uh, since you come here for three weeks, you're here for three weeks. So I thought if the doctor can help me to die this week, then you can be here for the funeral. And then you guys can clean up my house. And then you can leave. You don't have to come back and save yourself some money. <laughs> very practical. <laughs> very, very practical. <laughs> and I said, uh, so she looks at me like, well, that's my plan. And I'm sticking to it. And I said, uh, and I, I, I had heard that this is what she wanted, but I just played dumb. And I said, uh, first of all, 
I didn't come to see you die. I came to be with you. And I said, secondly, you have been a Catholic your whole life, praying to God, praying to Mother Mary. I said, what happened to you that you all of a sudden decide to take over and take the lead on all this? Mm -hmm. Why don't you trust that God will take care of you? Said number three, I don't think that dad is waiting somewhere in a waiting room, like checking his watch, like she, I think she'd be coming soon. <laughs> and so she looks at me and she looks at the doctor and she looks at me and she says to the doctor, well, what do I have to do with somebody like this? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, I have to be honest with you. I see what your son is saying. Your heart is still so strong. Yes, you have the lung problem, but we there has to be three doctors that can agree right. that you are at that stage where we can help you with morphine. And he said, you're not at that stage. And I don't think we can make a hard case for you at this point. Mm -hmm. And this is how she processed that part of hospice. And she literally said, I don't want it was the, the Olympics were on. <laughs> So she didn't want to see TV, didn't want to hear music. She just laid in bed for from August till December. And then she passed died. away in December. Yeah. And it was uh it was rough. She actually really interesting. She called me the morning it was her afternoon was morning for us. She called me that this was it. This was the day the doctor was going to come and give her morphine, and she was going to fall asleep. That was in December, mm -hmm. December 8th. And so she calls me. I'm just sitting down for breakfast. Oh, wow. And she says, just want to let you know that today is the day. Wow. And here I'm sitting, and I'm having a cup of coffee in my hand, and my food is in front of me. And I said, Mom. And she says, well, you know, I just want to say goodbye. <laughs> it's so interesting this it's woman fascinating your, your mom sounds like quite a character oh she was but i didn't know that part of her yeah well maybe she didn't either you know i mean there's, there's plenty of traditions i mean i think that's a beautiful story of the the spirit being ready to leave before the body is right well that's right and i want to end end the story real quick two more sentences yeah. so she says uh well just want to want to say goodbye and i said mom i don't know what to say but yeah. i want to thank you Thank you for everything you've done for me and giving me life. Wow. And I, I really, really wish you the strength on this journey. And she says, I got to go. Doctor just walks in the room. <laughs> See you later. And she just hangs up the phone. <laughs> if, if only all of us could have that conversation with our loved ones. Wow. You know, that's amazing. You know, that was the hardest thing for me was when I left after those three weeks uh, in yeah. August to say, well, the plane is leaving tomorrow. I have to say goodbye to you now. And that was hard, very hard. And I'm so glad that my two daughters were in the Netherlands and that they were much more involved through that final process and uh, to be there and to give us reports how it was going. And so, and that's my personal story then, even though I wasn't present, it was a personal. My, my father passed away of a heart attack, as I mentioned, and I wasn't home. I, I was, mm -hmm. I came home 10, 15 minutes later. And so it had happened, but, uh, I anything. think that's an amazing, an amazing story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know what, what I really love about that story, Jacobus is the, the apparent directness with, with, with which your mother approached her end of life. 
right? Yes. She was ready. The system and the doctors weren't quite ready, so she had to wait around, but she was clear. She was direct. She had she had she felt like she was done with her life and i i think there's something beautiful and something to respect about that doesn't mean you have to end literally end the life at that moment and and it didn't happen that way right no, she lived for a few more months yeah um but the the gift of having that direct conversation is as jarring as it might sound to yeah. certain ears I, I think is absolutely amazing it's unique i never heard it before very unique and you even get a call the day she's going to die and, yeah. uh, and you get to, a chance to say your gratitude which not everybody can get a chance to do that mm -hmm. i mean there's, there's so much beauty in all that dynamic that uh i'm grateful that you had that yeah i have to add one thing and it is when we talked in the first hour about the anxiety and the terror of death my mother, because of her lung condition, and like I said, she never smoked in her life. They thought that maybe, my sister thought maybe she had gotten an allergy that went to her lungs and it called, it, it started the destruction of the lung cells mm. one at a time. And then the dead cell would explode and then affect the next cell right. and then impenetrate and explode and etc. cetera. Uh, she said she was terribly afraid of dying while suffocating yeah can you imagine yes i can imagine and that was one reason why she said i want to be in control of this with the help from a doctor that i die while i can still breathe yeah well i think that begs the question of uh you know assisted life ending right that's been a controversial topic for decades about whether you should you know have a doctor help you take your life before you start to suffer too. Yeah, too it's greatly. a very interesting topic. Yeah, it's very powerful. What what a, and 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 it that's a real fear, right? I mean, no no. I mean, most people I think when you ask them how would you like to die, they want to die peaceful and be able to say goodbye to everybody. You mm -hmm. know, and it's it's like the movie, right? You're in the bed yeah. and everybody's around and unfortunately, I don't think the majority of us have that. Mm -hmm. But you could see you're this right. is this is one of our things about the terror management, right? We can imagine ourselves suffocating. Mm -hmm. We can imagine ourselves in mm -hmm. pain. We can imagine ourselves without a limb and on and on and on. Yeah. Good morning, caller. Thanks for joining the program this morning. What's your name? How can we help you, please? This is Clint. Clint, good morning to you. Good morning, Jacobus. Good morning to your guests. Good yeah. morning, Clint. Tommy Donovan. Tommy, you guys are talking about death this morning. Yeah. It's been kind of a sad situation in my family here this last month. Mm. Uh, I lost a daughter in August the 3rd. Sorry to hear that, Clint. Yeah, Clint. Yeah, it was uh, opioids, mm. drugs, and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And she had everything in the world. You know, she never lacked for nothing. Yeah. But a do she hurt her back in the nursing home. She was a registered nurse, too. Uh, oh. Now, how do you like that? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and so the doctor got her started on these because she hurt her back lifting people in the nursing home, okay? Right. Yeah. And she couldn't quit. So mm. finally she kept after the drugs and stuff. And it was the first time in my life uh, that I felt so bad for not only my daughter, but for other folks out here. Yeah. You know, that are going through the same thing. Yeah. And then you think back of when they were small and happy and 
mm-hmm. and doing things, you know. And it's really hard on any time a parent. I lost my one daughter in Arkansas. She was an RN too. Oh yes, for cancer, you know, yes, in two thousand one. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Then I lost a granddaughter in a in a where her her sister was driving a car, you know, and rolled the car over and broke her uh, sister's neck, and killed her. She was fourteen. Wow. It's a lot so of tragedy. I, yeah, I know what the death part is, you know, and yes. uh, and then I had uh, my brother's uh, uh, boy and his grandson. They were killed over here going to going to Norse, and so I've had a lot of it. And the only thing I can say mm-hmm. about death is this: it's permanent, mm-hmm. and whatever health you have today, you want damn sure to take care of it. That's right. You know, and if you take care of it and try to be optimistic, it's hard for me even anymore to be optimistic. But if you you got to try to be optimistic about life and carry on, mm-hmm. you well, know, it's like you guys, what you're talking about. It's uh, you're talking about your father and, uh, and how you thought maybe he was a little ornery, maybe when he was you were <laughs> younger. And then you when you get older, then you think about it and maybe it wasn't as bad as you thought. Uh, maybe he had a good reason. You know, there's lots of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't you think, you guys? Don't you? Th- what's your opinion of that? Something like what I've just told you about about all the all the death that you've uh, faced. Well, yeah. Now, how do you think I should be? How do you think that my mental state normally? Well, uh, you know, I I don't know you personally, but my wish is that you have your full expression of grief without anybody trying to short circuit that or tell you that it's wrong or shame you out of having that. That's right. I agree there. Uh, there's, there's so much, and, and men have a more difficult time, I think, with grief. I, I, I've talked to many men, including my own self, where we think if we start grieving, we'll never stop. Oh. Well, that's the first thing that when it happened to me, my wife came down to my shop and told me, she, she, and she was crying, and then she, I says, well, I'll be home pretty quick, and my God, I cried and cried. I cried down there for an hour, mm-hmm. and then I says, "Clint, you gotta, you gotta shape up here." So, I ever since then, why I've tried to, to, not think about it so much, you know. Well, I think I think there's moments when we have to maybe take a break from thinking of it, but I I, I wouldn't want you to lose the access to the grieving process because that's where a lot of healing takes place and yeah. and, and grieving as you know because you've been through it a lot is organic right it's going to yeah it's going to take us by the scruff of the neck and have its way with us whether we like it or not and well there's something here's here's something that really bothers me today you see on the television all these different ads for various different drugs you know and mm-hmm. you wonder to yourself well, why do people get hooked on this stuff? Well, they say, well, I'll have to tell my doctor and try that or something. Right. You know, and it isn't good. So anyway, I better hang up. Your music's on. So. Well, this is definitely a point that we want to continue on okay. uh, when we come back, Clint. Take okay, care of the spirit, you. Clint. Take thank care. Thank you very much. You too. Bet. Bye. Bye. Dr. Tommy Donovan, my guest, this morning on Gesundheit with Jacobus, the topic, death becomes us this is actually what clint is talking about death becomes us Mm. the mystery of mortality and the need for meaning Uh, we'll be right back if we have a moment uh, different cultures the history how have how have we dealt with death and dying 
throughout history and is that important today? Does it help us today coping with the grieving process, coping with being exposed to a the death in our own life, the death that is part of our life, that's the end of our life, death in in our, the immediate family, loved ones who are on death's doorstep. It puts life and money, career, success, all in perspective. And we are therefore different. We become different people. It is an experience for most people when they are confronted with death up, so up close. It often makes us a different person. We come out of this calmer, more thoughtful, more empathetic towards other people in life. Uh, it, it, it is a part of our growing process, part of us growing up, so to say, no matter what our age, either we're young teenagers when it happens or when we are as Clint in his 80s and dealing with death and and the pain that is felt because of that. Uh, I really appreciate all of you are tuning in today. I hope you stay with us just another hour at 11 o'clock. But as I asked my guest, uh, Dr. Tommy Tonovan, to come back, at, before we even asked the first question, I said, you got to come back. we got to do this again because there is so much to discuss. He is uh, Dr. Tommy, Tommy Donovan, holds a doctorate in depth psychology with a specialty in mortality studies. He received his degree from Pacifica Graduate Institute and currently teaches in the Honors College at Montana State University. And I went to a lecture last night. Uh, it was called The Hero's Journey. Very interesting. It was a class, but it was also a lecture and open for discussion. And to hear the young students being involved in the conversation and working their minds and uh, coming up with their how their life experience and things that they have read how that it affected them in the discussion was was very interesting for me to see and to observe and i'm i'm very glad i went and if uh, if you ever have a chance to have to do this uh, to go to msu and go to lectures given by professors or involving the students uh, take your chance and do so uh Dr. Donovan, his cell phone, of no cell phone, his office phone, if you like to ask him a question about this topic or would like to have a discussion with him, 406-994-4110-994-4110. You can also email him at thomas.donovan at montana.edu, thomas.donovan at montana.edu. It's uh, so such a pleasure. And you just said two hours are gone. We only have one hour to go. It's amazing. Yeah. Good let's, to have let's you. Let's keep going after 11. Yeah, I will tell Tom to just <laughs> go go for lunch. Early lunch, Tom. <laughs> I, I, That's I, I, the other Tom. There's another Tom coming in. Yeah, I'm, not you. <laughs> I, I was thinking about uh, Clint's phone call, right? Yeah. That was... Uh, and there's a couple of things that come to mind. In, in addition to, once again, hoping that he can have his full grieving process i mean there's a lot of tragedy i mean i mean and and when you have that much tragedy isn't it a natural response for the human psyche to try to make meaning out of that right to mm -hmm. to, to understand it to give it context mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah. And uh, the other thing uh, with Clint's call is that it appears in our culture that it's extra tragic or hard to handle when a child passes away. Oh, my goodness. And And again, I think that underscores the idea that maybe we should be having these conversations all throughout life. So we prepare ourselves for the possibility of death or maybe as uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes talks about the, the mythologists that we, that we all carry death lightly on our shoulder, wherever we go. Mm. And uh, we allow that to inform our, our approach to life and our approach to each other. Mm. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's quite possible that conversations that start early and continue throughout life about mortality, uh, will give us the gift of acceptance, open the doors to grief without shame, and, uh, you know, allow us to hold this very natural but often tragic process in a different way than we do right now. When a parent dies or an uncle or a grandfather, the only knowledge we have of that person is as an adult. When a child dies... The first memory, as Clint expressed, was thinking about the child, the child as a child. Correct. And the grieving, and we haven't used the word grieving very much during the conversation at this point. Maybe we can get to it. And we have a caller on hold. Caller, I will get to you in just a moment, please. But the grieving process of memory of mm. a child and... I have that at times with my own children and I have a very good relationship with them, but my life, the way it has gone through my stay in the United States, I've had to miss a lot of time of, I, I should say I chose because I had to work. Mm. I could have stayed home, but I had to work to make a living. So I worked and worked and worked and worked and I made luckily we made fo some photographs, we did some home videos, and for me to look at that, I can get tears in my eyes looking at my children and their reactions and how they talk and their voices and mm -hmm. how they interact with the camera, and I just go, man, I forgot all about that, and mm -hmm. it is those memories that come back, and I feel when Clint said that, it was the first thought that it came up to me, the grieving of a time that has passed and it shows, and as wonderful as my children are, it shows me that stage of their life that I never really lived to the fullest. Right. And I think as we come towards the end of our life, and, and Clint is somebody who has been very active and involved in things that he was very, that he's passionate about, you start thinking, did I do it all right? And so right. there is a double, there's a double whammy here. There is the grief of loss. And there is the, there is the, the contemplation of life mm -hmm. and death, at, which will be eminent at some point. Right. No, that's, that's a absolutely, uh, well articulated. And, and, and it, and, you know, part of our sustaining mythology is that the, the next generation gets nurtured and, and cared for and they surpass the previous generation, you know, the, the elder generation. That's a logical step in our cultural mythology. It makes sense. It gives us great hope. 
great possibility. But it wasn't always the case, right? I mean, in in, in centuries past, child mortality was exceptionally high, oh, right? Goodness. You didn't have that oh, expectation. Of course, you're yeah. right. And 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 now, uh, right? You're right. It's 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 the double whammy of, of not fulfilling that trajectory, which is expected in our culture, and the loss of a baby, really, that who deserves to live, who deserves to live the same way that we expect all of us to live into our 80s or 90s, and but we know fate is fate and death is is whimsical and capricious and not always uh doesn't always follow our timetable correct and and you sometimes wonder and Clint this is not per se a question that you have to answer but why are you still standing why are you still surviving what is what what is it that you need to learn out of this mm. And I don't mean this in a harsh way. I mean this in the most loving and gentle way. What is it that we need to get out of this death? These premature people, the, the premature death of these individuals, younger people, children, grandchild, grandchild. What is it that we need to learn out of this? What is it for us? Yeah, I, right? I think that's a question you have to live your way into. Right? No, no one has an answer to that one. Hmm. Caller, are you still with us? I am. The ghost is Steve. Hey, Steve. Good morning to you. Uh, you know, that's an interesting subject today, but when I was going to college, which was a while ago, I had, I just decided I would take a religious studies class. Wow. Good for you. And, and so you learn about all these different religions and what they believe, and... So then, that kind of, I was, you know, raised a Christian, and so you you start asking yourself when you see all what everybody else is indoctrinated with, is what I call it today, but but uh, why does the Christians believe this, and why do the Hindus believe this, and why do the, you know, and all these different religions, and so you ask yourself, well, who's right? Mm -hmm. And what I have think I have discovered is that, you know, you're talking about, you know, a young child that um, may pass away or whatever, but from what I my studies have told me is we come here and we have different issues and things that we have to deal with until we get those right, we keep coming back till we get it right. Mm. And... You know, a child maybe passes away. Well, maybe that child came here for the reason, whatever it was, they had to learn, and then they they go. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, from from my experience, or at least what I've learned in in the Christian religion, is if we were, if we knew that we had to come back and live what we had allowed to be created on this planet, we might be a little bit more concerned <laughs> about what goes through our lives daily yeah. and what our country is and what our government does. And instead, you hear people say, well, I'm, I've only got 10 more years to live or whatever it is. Well, duh, they don't get to do that. They have to come back and live what they allowed to be created. You know, Edgar Casey was the 
first one that I started reading. And fascinating, uh, fascinating man. Yes, that opened my eyes to a whole lot of other uh, writers, people who've been here, who've died, and and uh, have experienced, you know, the different things we. We meet different people in this life. Maybe we've, from what I've studied and read, is that, you know, we've made agreements with certain individuals before we come here. And then when we go, we have a group of people that we study with, and, and we say, well, I'm going to do better this next time. But we get involved with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and we forget what we came here for. And uh, and then we we get to experience what we allowed to be created. But hmm. anyway, that's my studies on life. And uh, thank you, Steve. You bet. Yeah, appreciate you it. Good subject. Thanks a lot, Steve. I appreciate it. You have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye bye. Five two two five two two eight two five 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 two two talk is that number two six six seven six one seven is the text. 266-7617. Give us a text if you would rather do that. It's it's fascinating to me that in a number of the callers and just talking to people over the years that the in a in a place like uh, America we have sort of a smorgasbord of uh, possible theories about mortality and life after death and again how how what serves us to get us through the night and I, I think Steve's point is. Can be could be beautiful and workable in 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 his paradigm and you know if if that's the way uh, mortality and and life on earth makes sense I say bravo yeah you know but I, I, I what we don't want to do again is to you know I think a grieving parent who didn't share that particular belief system the last thing they want to hear is that hey you know your kids serve their purpose yes or you know yes if that isn't their paradigm. You know, we're in uh, in a dicey situation if we try to impose that on somebody. You mm -hmm. know, the whole a, a classic response to grief or death and dying is, you know, it's all for a reason. It serves a purpose. Well, if that person is not believing that, that's not the conversation to have. Hmm. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. We appreciate you all tuning in today. Uh, Dr. Tommy Donovan is my guest professor at Montana State University in the mortality studies. Uh, very interesting, the mystery of mortality. And um, 522 Talk is the number. Good morning, caller. Thank you for joining. What is your name, please? How can we help you? Hey, good morning, Jacobus. This is Dean the Dentist. Hey, Dean the Dentist. <laughs> My All favorite right. dentist. Hey. Yeah. I was listening to your conversation. and Thanks. What happens after death yeah, is very arguable. But what I wanted to ask your uh, guest there is about how long does it take for an average person who loses a loved one to get back to what I would call normality? I know it always is a little bit painful. And is it much less for a, when you lose a grandparent who's, a, you know, they've lived a good life and they're expected to go compared to someone in their youth or maybe a spouse that is taken unexpectedly? I just wondered... And your experience, uh, about how much time does it take for a person to, you know, to reboot? To so reboot, I'm, interesting. Listen. 
All right. Thanks, Dean. Appreciate the call. I think that's a great question, and uh, I, I think the answer will vary, uh, certainly depending on some of the things you've indicated yourself, right? Your personal relationship with the person who's passed away. Good point. Great point. The quality, the depth, uh, the distance, the closeness. Um, as I said earlier, I think in our culture, you don't get much time to grieve or reboot. You know, you got pretty much 15 minutes, and then you should be... Uh, out of people's faces with your tears. And I think that's a problem. Uh, some indigenous cultures that I'm familiar with in Africa, uh, Native American, some Native American cultures, yeah. a year, a full year to go through the cycles, you know, all the seasons, huh. all the anniversaries, all the birthdays. Uh, some people hold that as a, a time frame. Um, but again, you know, grieving is organic. Uh, if you need, Five years or two years or one year, you know, your, your spirit and your soul and your psyche may absolutely need that. Um, and, and I think probably the, the final point would be that I don't think there is any full rebooting. There's, there's no normalcy after uh, someone dies. Uh, That's a good point, too. I, I think everything changes. Uh, it may look like normalcy to the outside world. Uh, that you're going to work and you're laughing over beers with your friends and, you know, going skiing. But the loss is always profound and it always touches us and etches our souls in uh, ways that change us. Hmm. Yeah. That's hmm. my current thinking. Yeah, that is uh, it's true. But he makes a great point. Uh, when you have a child who you may not have known very long right. versus a parent who you've known your whole life until that point. How does that work? But I think it also depends on your your relationship, your heart-to-heart, -heart, not like what is my relationship, right. but the heart-to-heart -heart relationship with the individual. Uh, I think you just mentioned that actually. That plays a role. How intense has that relationship been? Plus, I think with a child, especially if it's the parent of the child, there's an impulse to agonize over why didn't I protect them? How could I have done something different to not make this happen? Uh, and that's that double well, part of the double whammy you were talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. There's loss, there's grief, then there's the parent energy of, I should have done something. Yeah, I should have to, tried better. I we should have done. Yeah, right. I totally. And, and 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 that gets very complex and very agonizing. We use the term "dying of a broken heart," and I can see that in what the caller is saying. We we can be so sad about what just happened that we never get over that. And like you say, your never your life never will be the same again. Mm -hmm. And it can have such an effect that literally you can die of a broken heart. I agree. I think that I think uh, literature and poetry and, and, and culture has demonstrated that over and over again. And I think that's real. I mean, maybe that's what scares people and they want people to get out of that grief quicker or prematurely yeah. because yeah. that's. It's a difficult space to witness. It's a difficult space to, to be in. 
And, you know, grief is a constant reminder that um, death has visited us. Yeah. And it's, it's hard for people to hold. I think we were talking yesterday about somebody who died, uh, a mother died, very close relationship. I think we're talking with you about it. Yeah. And sometimes when one of the two dies, even though it is a mother-daughter relationship, sometimes within a very short period of time, the other person dies. I have seen, witness it over here, a couple of folks in Bozeman, and they had been married for like 60 years, and they did everything together. And and she passes away. Um, she passed away, and I don't think it was four weeks, and he passed away too. Yeah. It's, it was it's a, a broken like heart. Your, it's a little bit like your mom. I mean, maybe she didn't die of a broken heart, but she was ready, right? Her well, husband was Well, she's always gone. missed. Life always was, missed my dad. Always. Yeah. She was 49 when he passed away, and he was 52 at the time. And it's one of those things that just really um, affects us. I uh, Let's get a caller on because we've got to run to a break. Uh, good morning, caller. What's your name? How can we help you? This is Aaron. Aaron, you want to you wanna stay on? You want to call us right back? I don't want to ignore the call. I'll, I'll, I'll call back. Call back. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. All right, folks. Um, we are hitting... <laughs> We're in the, the bottom of the hour. That means only half hour left for Dr. Tommy Donovan. I hope you stay with us all the way, and I hope uh, that you will participate in this last half hour. There is lots of topics we still want to discuss, but we love to have the interaction with you as well. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus. I really appreciate you all tuning in today. Wonderful topic, wonderful guest. Uh, we'll be right back. Don't hesitate to call the program. We're ready when you are. 